All right. Good morning, Riverwood fam. How are we doing this morning? We're going to be in uh, Colossians 3, verses 22 and 25 this morning. Uh, and that's where we're going to be learning from God's Word. And as Aaron mentioned, we are continuing our kind of year-long sermon series, The Everyday Gospel. Uh, if you were with us at the beginning of the year in February, we went through the relationship edition. Uh, then in July, we went into the self edition. And after that, we went right into the money edition. And today, I have the honor and privilege of kicking off the life edition. Uh, and the reason why we're going through this series is we're actually going to cover three topics over today and the next couple of weeks. Uh, the gospel and work, the gospel and rest, and the gospel and time. And the reason we have this series is to look at what the Bible actually says and see how it shows us how we're to live out the gospel in these everyday areas of life. And when I found out that in the Life Edition we were going to be going over the gospel and its relation to work, I actually asked Aaron if I could preach this Sunday because I'm really fascinated by this phenomena of work in our culture, that it kind of uh, dominates both our lives and our conversations. Um, I put a post out on Facebook and just asked people, hey, what's your job? What do you, what do, you do? And I got an overwhelming response from so many people. We had anybody from a nurse to a CNA to uh, teachers to counselors to so many different types of engineers I didn't even know existed. Uh, and I believe uh, Cat Wrangler was in there as well. Uh, but also parents chimed in uh, that uh, stewarding their children is quite the effort. Imagine having uh, an employee for 18 plus years. That is a legacy. Um, but we, we also, uh, work dominates our conversations a lot in that we'll say, uh, when we see someone we know, it's like, how was work this week? Uh, even when I come home and, and Grace is home, she'll ask, honey, how was your day at work? High school students getting ready to go into college and college students, you, you might, this might sound familiar to you. Uh, so what's your major? Mm-hmm. So what do you want to do with that? Which roughly translates, uh, what do you want to do for work with your major? And not that it's wrong to ask these questions. They're great questions that help us find out more about somebody. Uh, but for some people, they can actually be either a good conversation or a bad conversation. Uh, and I actually believe there are three ways that we can see work in our lives. Uh, the first of which is we can see work as grief. Uh, for some of us, we're just Garfield. You know, yesterday was Saturday, today is Sunday, and tomorrow is Monday. We gotta go back to work. Um, and it could be for a multitude of reasons. Either you have a bad boss or terrible coworkers, you're not getting paid enough, uh, you leave really early in the morning, work all day, and get back late in the evening, uh, and there, there could be just a multitude of reasons that uh, work is grief for you. You might even think that work is a cause of the fall. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, that God was like, all right, I'm going to put you to work. Uh, so for some of us, work is grief. Uh, the second thing that we can actually see grief, uh, work as is work as a God, actually. Um, so what this means is, in this case, you see uh, your work, 
your job, your salary, your position on the corporate ladder, how close you are to getting a raise or promotion, that's your main focus. That is your life. And we can actually make work a God by uh, coming to the false God of work and coming to the altar and sacrificing things like time with our friends, family. We can sacrifice our relationships so that we can celebrate and worship the false God of work. Seeing work as a God also determines how we see, in turn, other people. Uh, If you see someone who has uh, a less prestigious job, they're making less money than you, they don't work as many hours, or they don't have as good as a work ethic as you do, you tend to look down on them and demean them as someone who is made in the image and likeness of God. In turn, you can also envy somebody who has a better job, better pay, better work ethic than you. So you're really caught in between a rock and a hard place there. These questions can actually, uh, from, you know, what do you do? Where do you work? Can actually turn into uh, kind of socio-financial evaluation of whether someone or not, if, if they're worth your time. And so... With work, we can either demonize it or we can idolize it. But I think there's actually a way we can utilize it that the Bible actually teaches more truthfully. I think the third way we can see work is that work is actually a gift. That work is a gift from God. And if work is a gift from God to us, that we are to work in a way that worships and glorifies and honors God, And if we're made in his image and likeness, then that points back to the fact that our God is a God who works. If we go back to the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we see the first thing that God does is he works. He creates the universe. It says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we read the rest of the creation account, uh, we see that God creates the universe by just speaking it into existence. We see that God demands his decrees and act the creation and thus it's made. His will, his, his way be done, his work is finished. And so not only did God create the universe, God still sustains the universe. It even reads in the creation account that he called on the land to produce vegetation and to produce living creatures. Theologian Terence Frethian explains this, saying, In these cases, God speaks with that which has already been created and involves them in further creative activity. This is immediate rather than immediate creation. It is creation from within rather than creation from without. God's creation is not unilateral. It is multilateral. The non-human creatures have a genuine vocational role. The waters and earth do actually participate with God in acts of creation. And so we also see that God enlists us, people who are made in his image and likeness, to become creation's royal custodians. We see that he mandates us to be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, and rule 
over the earth. Dr. Andrew Schmutzer of Moody Bible Institute writes about how our being made in the image of God uh, affects this matter. He says, those who are modeled on the divine are in turn to serve their king by modeling the the divine to the world. In the biblical theology of Genesis, being an image bearer, which is being in, uh, made in the image of God, is primarily functional to fulfill the creation mandate and necessarily relational. Image is tied to ruling as humankind serves as God's underking. And so we see this in Genesis 2 that God uh, commands Adam, the first human, the first man, to work the ground, which uh, pastor and theologian uh, Zach Hicks notes as worship language, that God's sending and, and putting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to work the ground, to cultivate and uh, to steward and to grow and to take care of the garden is actually an act of worship. And we even see uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that God the Son comes down into human form as a man and works a job as a carpenter. He takes on his earthly father, Joseph's profession as a carpenter, which was a hard job. Like, I was talking to Zach about this earlier this week, and he's telling me, like, you've got to be detail-oriented. You've got to have some serious skill. It's a lifelong thing that you pick up things and you carry them with you throughout the rest of your life, and you just know these things. It was hard work. And we also see that when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, he actually uh, did works and signs and wonders and miracles. And if you would call yourself a Christian this morning, if you would be a bona fide Jesus follower, God has sent his Holy Spirit to live in you, dwell in you, and to do a work in you and through you so that you can be more like him, so that he sanctifies you, and so that you can be his witness, so that you can do his work and his will on earth. And so as we walk through Colossians three twenty-two through 25, I want us to be asking these uh, questions. How can my work be worshiped to God? How can my work glorify God every day? How can God use me to be a more faithful witness to what he has done? So let's open up our Bibles to Colossians 3, verses 22 through 25, Uh, And then I'll pray for us this morning. Paul says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. God, as we come to you this morning, we worship you through song, we worship you through prayer, and I pray that uh, we would worship you through uh, the hearing and teaching of your word. Uh, I ask that even though I have prepared uh, a message, that you would actually fill me with your spirit, that you would take over, that you would share with your people what you would have them here, that you would have them learn, that you would have them walk out um, in their everyday lives. Help us to work as an act of worship 
help us work as a witness to your great work, Lord. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, some of you with uh, your Bibles, I, I had the text on the screen. Uh, some of you have different translations that actually uses the word slave instead of bondservant. And I'm actually going to be arguing from the English Standard Version, the ESV, uh, that is more articulate, that is more accurate, and then a more literal translation, and it uses bondservant. Um, and rather than trying to rush past this issue or you know, deny what the Bible says or discredit or edit what the Bible says or change what the Bible says, how about we actually look at what the Bible says and see what Paul means in this context. And I want to do this first by uh, comparing and contrasting what it means to be a slave and what it means to be a bondservant. And as you may know, like the wickedness of slavery, it's not a controversy. Like we just know it's evil, it's immoral, it's shameful, it is painful, and it's ungodly. Um, History has uh, testified that slavery has existed almost just about everywhere. Um, In the United States, uh, we had American uh, slavery, where African Americans or Africans were enslaved by people here, or they were brought over. Um, For some of us, uh, as we read the Bible in the book of Genesis, uh, we see towards the end that Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers to Egypt. And then later in Exodus, at the beginning of Exodus, we actually see that God's people have come under slavery, under Pharaoh's oppressive rule. And I think perhaps the modern equivalent of slavery would be sex trafficking. And so, as we're looking at this here in the Bible, we, we see this word, we see slave, and we wonder why it's not being condemned right here and right now by the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Colossians, also wrote a letter to Timothy. He wrote First Timothy, uh, and in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, it says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he continues to name all these different uh, identities of sin, and one of them that he calls out is enslavers, slave traders. And he goes on to say, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, which sound doctrine is a healthy dose of teaching from the scripture, from God's word. And so right here, Paul condemns slave trading. He condemns slavery, um, which if, if you're not sure exactly what that is, it's where someone is either free or they're maybe born into it, but they are taken into captivity and they are made someone else's property, a person owning another person. Um, and that's sex trafficking today. That was American slavery And that was ancient slavery. Now let's contrast this with what it means to be an ancient bondservant. Well, how does somebody become a bondservant? Paul is writing this in the context of the ancient Roman Empire, which was a vast and powerful empire and also a conglomeration of nations, cultures, and peoples. And so when Paul is writing about the category of bondservant, 
sociologically and economically, it is a complicated category uh, because many people were in it willingly, but some people were in it unjustly. Um, so one instance is that uh, being a bond servant was actually a way that you would settle debt. It was, it was a way of dealing with ancient bankruptcy. So, so nowadays, you know, if you would uh, go in for a loan, maybe you're starting a business, you'd go in for a loan and they would ask, so what's your collateral, you know, if you default? And instead of, you know, offering your house or some property you own as collateral, you would actually say, if I default on this loan, I will offer my services to you. I'll live on your property. You'll feed me, but I'll work for you for six, eight, ten years. And if you had a family, you would maybe even offer them up as well. It was a way of dealing with debt. It was ancient bankruptcy. Another way that somebody would become a bond servant, if a family was uh, in poverty, if they were uh, maybe on the brink of starvation, and because they didn't have a social services net like we do today, what they would actually do is they would go to somebody who was wealthy, who could provide shelter and food, and live on their property and work for them for a certain agreed period of time. Another way that someone would become a bond servant is, say, they're wanting to learn a trade. Uh, they would give themselves to kind of their master for a certain amount of time, agreed upon uh, together, and they would learn this skill, this trade, without pay, and they would learn, they would kind of apprentice under this master, and then at the agreed time, they would leave and they would start their own business. And so others were maybe prisoners of war, and in some cases, uh, children and infants who have been abandoned by their parents on the streets, by the trash, were actually picked up by other people and taken as property. And so while Many uh, were treated poorly. And so we look at this, uh, and actually historians and archaeologists say that at this time in ancient Roman history, about one-third to one-half of the Roman population were in this status, a bondservant. To give you an idea, that's about roughly 60 million people. Imagine that today in the U.S. Like, I've got, I've got student debt. Like, I'm sure everyone has some sort of debt. And if you haven't, then you've taken FPU, and you're good. <laughs> uh, but just imagine that with how much debt our nation has. One-third to one-half of U.S. citizens being bond servants. And so someone here this morning might be asking, well, why doesn't the Bible just reject this category, remove it if it's so... Uh, unjust if it's so evil. And I would say this is why the Bible doesn't do that right here. That's why Paul doesn't remove the category for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that while some people are in it unjustly, a number of people are actually in it because they willingly agreed to do so. That's the first reason. And the second reason is because it would actually create another injustice. Um, if I said, good morning, Riverwood, if you want to follow Jesus then you don't have to pay off your loans, your debts, uh, your cars, your, your house. We'd have a revival. Okay, imagine that, you know. And non-Christians would look at the Bible and they would look at the notes and they'd say, right, that's not right. We, we lent you, you borrowed from us, and now you've stolen from us. And 
And I just want to say, being a bondservant was a complicated situation because many were in it because of a deal that they had previously agreed to. Um, you know, being a bondservant wasn't primarily racial, like United States slavery. Um, people could actually be emancipated uh, by maybe the age of 30. Um, the Bible indicates, uh, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, he says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. And then a couple verses later, he says, do not become bondservants of men. Which implies that there was actually a way that individuals could get out of this status. So what we have here is that while the Bible does not condone this, it's actually teaching people how to live under this. Um, nowadays, we believe it or not, we have Christian brothers and sisters around the world living in countries where Christianity is actually criminalized. And their dictators would love for nothing more than just to squash them under their dominance. What if we were to write to them how to live faithfully and serve God fairly under an unjust, corrupt political climate? That, that doesn't mean that we endorse their government. Amen? What it means is that today, that is their reality. That tomorrow, that will still be their reality. So how do they serve God faithfully in their context? So what is the cultural equivalent to being a bondservant? Um, I would say perhaps the uh, closest, while not perfect, parallel would be the workforce. Um, so we've got uh, employers who have authority over their employees and employees who are under the authority of their employer. So when we're looking at this text, think master, employer, bond servant, employee. And I, and I think as, as we get into the text, there are three lessons that Paul actually has for us on how we are to worship God through our work. I think the first way... Uh, is that we are actually to worship God uh, by obeying with sincerity of heart, that we are to work sincerely. If we are to be Jesus' witnesses in the workplace, then we've got to actually work like Jesus worked. God came down, became a man, and worked a hard job as a carpenter. How many of us have ever thought, like, I need a better job, I need a bigger raise? I need a better boss. Now imagine how Jesus must have wrestled with this, being a perfect God, come down into human history, having to work under someone else's imperfect authority. Jesus never had the perfect boss. Jesus never actually had a boss who was worthy to be his boss. Yet he worked sincerely for the glory of God and for the good of those around him. You know, he, he didn't uh, work by way of eye service, you know, only when the boss was around. Jesus didn't work as a people pleaser, you know, kissing up to the boss. But he worked with sincerity of heart. And Paul says, fearing the Lord. And so when we fear the Lord, when you live in total awe and 
reverence of who God is. And because of what God has done, and because God invites us to work in relationship with him, you see things differently. You see this not as a have to, but a get to. You hear that? You don't see this work as a have to, but you get to. You know, if that, that's not mere optimism. You know, it's not a glass half full kind of way of looking at it. If we look through this as, uh, through, through the lens, as somebody who has been redeemed and restored and transformed by God, our hearts are going to change because God is the one who changes hearts. And if God has changed our hearts, we're not going to see this as an obligatory uh, shackle. We're going to actually see this with new eyes because we've got a new life and a new heart that we have an opportunity to actually worship God through our work with sincerity. And we get to worship him obediently. Uh, The second lesson that Paul has for us is that we are to work heartily as for the Lord. Now notice, I did not say work hardly. Okay, I know it's heartily, which means to work hard with all your heart, with your whole heart. And so when you go in for your uh, employer evaluation, uh, which for some of us might be once or twice a year, you know, once every six months, uh, the one thing you do not want to hear on your critique section is, does not work hard at all. The other thing you don't want to hear in your room for improvement section is, could goof off less while on the clock. And I know it's hard. I know the daily grind is difficult, you know, to do it every day and give it everything. But I think this is why Paul says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so if you have a high view of God, if you have a high regard for his word, his scriptures, his commands, his decrees, you are actually going to live and worship and work differently. you're actually going to pay God more attention and honor, you are actually going to, uh, you know, whether, whether you have a good boss or bad boss, you're going to see God is your boss's boss. That's, that's what he says. Uh, now, every organization, you know, or, or company has some sort of chart of who is at the top. You know, so maybe you even have at your workplace like a designated wall where it's got like the picture of your boss and the picture of his bosses. Then right above him is the CEO. Now I want you to imagine Jesus is at the top of that, that he's above them all. Jesus is above them all, even if they aren't Christians. Um, And what I would say is that whatever boss you have, work hard, work hard for Jesus, knowing uh, knowing that they even have a boss above them, which is Jesus. Uh, Paul even says in Colossians uh, 4, verse 1, in the next chapter, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So whatever kind of boss you have, whether it's good, ba- good boss or bad boss, work hard. Like, I'm, I'm telling you, like, your work is not only part of your worship, Your work is a part of 
your witness. You want to know how to point your boss, your coworkers, your fellow employees to Jesus? By working hard for Jesus. There was a story uh, I heard of this janitor who was a Christian, and he had worked for this really successful business in this really big building, and he worked there probably about 30 plus years. Um, And so as he's teaching uh, this new guy, the new janitor, uh, what to do, new, new guys observing him, you know, scrub toilets, which in my experience is like, that's not something you really have to observe if you're doing it at home. Otherwise, uh, that's another story. But um, this guy was a, like, he was a quiet guy, humble guy. He was a faithful servant. And so as he's cleaning the toilets, the new guy recognizes that, like, he's cleaning the back of the toilets. Like that place where nobody actually looks. Just FYI, maybe look sometimes. Okay, just letting you know. And so the new guy asks, uh, why are you cleaning the back of the toilets? And the janitor said, because I work for Jesus. And he sees that too. Someone might sign my check, but ultimately I work for God. And I'm going to do a good job because I've got a good master and his name is Jesus. You know, working hard for Jesus, like say being a janitor or, or some other job that doesn't get a whole lot of praise or a whole lot of recognition, you know, working hard for Jesus doesn't always mean that the job is glorious or that the pay is great or that the benefits are awesome. But he's glorious. He's great. He's awesome. And he sees the work that we do, no matter how unnoticed it goes or how thankless it seems. And just one more thing. If you want to uh, really impress your boss, ask them how you can do a better job. Like, I'm, I'm telling you, just ask your job how you can improve what you're doing. Uh, because two things are going to happen. First thing, your boss is going to have probably a lot more respect for you. They might even love you. Second thing, they're going to have a heart attack because nobody asks this at all. And for those of you who are employers, you know that a lot of people are looking for work, but not a lot of people like this are showing up. You know, How do we worship Jesus? We work heartily for Jesus. We work hard. And I think that leads us to Paul's third lesson. And I think the third lesson is that we are to work longingly. Uh, that should be up on the screen. <laughs> Just so you can see. And he says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And so if we're going to live out our witness uh, for God before others, uh, and we're going to do that faithfully, we need to be reminded that there is a reward, that our work is not for nothing. Back in that day, bond servants didn't have anything. They they owned nothing. They didn't even have like a retirement plan. Who who here has a, a retirement plan, a 401k Okay, if you work for a nonprofit, it's like a 403B or, or, or C, I think. Uh, but 
most of us have that and we have a chunk of our, uh, our income going towards that so that later on in life, uh, when, it's, when it's time to cash it in, we can coast or, or just kind of chill for like a 5, 10, 15, maybe 25 years, maybe the rest of your life. Bond servants didn't have that. Bond servants didn't have a retirement plan. They were severely, extremely disadvantaged. Now, as you're thinking about your 5, 10, 15, maybe 25-year retirement plan, imagine having an eternal retirement plan. And this is what Paul is saying. Jesus has a retirement plan for you. You know, if, you know, if I think about, you know, I'm 25 and I'm, I'm in FPU right now. Luke's teaching it. And last week, uh, they asked kind of, what's your, what's your retirement plan? What do you want to do? And I'm like, I'm just trying to survive 25 right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, you know, go through the steps, uh, pay off our debt, then, then build our, you know, our uh, emergency fund. And I'm not even thinking about retirement right now. But Grace and I had our, our, our meeting that was a part of that, and we talked about what we want to do, and it's just like, that's pretty motivating. You know, if we look at the text and we see that God has a, a retirement plan, that he has an inheritance, a reward for us, that kind of gets me up in the morning. <laughs> that gets me going. Uh, and Jesus even says, um, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know what these treasures are. Uh, some pastors and theologians would have a better idea than I would. Some, some of them have pretty good theories. But I would say, ultimately, our truest treasure is going to be spending an eternity with Jesus. Amen? And maybe you have actually been cheated. Uh, maybe your boss or a fellow employee has taken something away from you that was pretty significant. They've stolen uh, from you. And what Paul says here is, hey, it's okay because you serve the Lord Jesus Christ who is more just and richer beyond all compare. God is going to pay them back for the wrong that they've done to you. And he's going to pay you back what you're owed. What they've stolen, God is going to take away from them. And what you've worked so hard for, God is going to restore. That's encouraging. That God is going to take care of us. He's going to take care of you. That God has a retirement plan, an inheritance for you eternally. Jesus has a way of taking care of it because he's God and he's good and he loves you. And so what Paul is teaching us is this is godly living under authority. Um, and Paul says uh, that, and there is no partiality. That means that God deals justly and fairly. He does not pick favorites like we see so many times in the Old Testament that fathers have chosen certain sons and then that has created a family division. God doesn't do that. 
There's no partiality. And he models for, for masters, for employers, how to be good masters and employers because our God is a good master. And some of you are afraid of, of making him your master. Uh, to, to be frank, some of, some of us, even I, think that, you know, I've got this pretty much under control. I, I know what I'm doing. I've got a good plan. I've got a good way of going about things. Um, but, but I'll tell you this, that Jesus is a better boss of you than you are of you. That Jesus is more loving of you than you are to you. That Jesus is more kind to you than you are to you. That Jesus is more forgiving than you are to you. That Jesus is more gracious and merciful than you are to you. You know, I, I used to think that uh, I was a pretty good master and I was a pretty good boss of myself until I met Jesus. And then he made me see that he's better to me than I am to myself. Even if you're here today and, and, and you can't necessarily call yourself a Christian, you, you wouldn't say that Jesus is your Lord, that he's your master. I want to let you know that you still have a master that the Bible teaches that either Jesus is your master or Satan is your master. And Satan's not a great master, okay? He, he's not loving, he's not fair, he's not just, he's not merciful, he's not forgiving, he's not gracious. But Jesus is. Jesus is loving and just and fair and gracious and generous eternally. Amen? And I want to let you know that not only is Jesus a good master, but he's also the perfect servant. Mark 20, verse 28 says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if, if you remember when we were in our series going through Philippians, Genuine Joy, earlier this year, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He knows what it's like to be us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is the perfect servant who came to die for our sin. He that, that we were owed wrath because the wages of sin is death. And he takes that upon himself on the cross, in our place, for our sin, so that we can be reconciled to our Father in heaven, so that his Holy Spirit can give us new life, so that it can dwell in us and empower us to live like Jesus lived and serve like Jesus served. And we're going to move into a time of communion. Um, we've got tables at the back. And I would ask for those of you who would call yourselves Christians, who would call Jesus Master, 
whether you've been coming to Riverwood for a long time or a short time, or even if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we would invite you to partake in communion with us this morning. That this morning we are remembering and celebrating the work that Jesus did for us on the cross, how that is the work that saved us. And so the bread back there represents Jesus' body that was pierced for our transgressions, as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, that he died on the cross in our place for our sins. And the juice back there represents his blood that was poured out and shed for the sins of many so that we may be washed clean and made like him. And I would also ask if, if you can't quite call yourself a Christian, if you can't quite call Jesus your master and your savior, I would ask you to um, just abstain from partaking, that this is something that we're celebrating because we see it that's, has something that God has done for us for his glory. But instead, I would actually ask you to uh, go and speak with either Aaron or one of the elders here this morning and, and talk with them and tell them if, if God is drawing you this morning, if God is drawing you to himself and you're trying to figure some of this out because they're going to pray with you and for you that you might make Jesus your master today. Let's pray and then we can go take the elements together. Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you that you are a God who works for us and not against us. Lord, as we celebrate your perfect life and your sinless death, and your glorious resurrection. I pray that you would continue conforming us in your image and likeness, that we would be made like you, that we would grow to know you more and to love you more and to follow you more. God, we bless you in this as we take communion together. We pray this in Jesus' name.